The following presentation is from Mountain Park Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Mountain Park, along with additional audio and video teachings, visit mountainpark.org. Welcome, uh, folks. So glad you're here. My name is Alan. Welcome to uh, Mountain Park. If you're uh, new or just visiting with us, we are absolutely thrilled that you're here. Uh, I don't know if you saw it, but one of the little Yahoo news articles was about a soccer club in New York City that made an official rule that in response to the flu epidemic and, and all that's happening there in the in, in Northeast, etc., that they're, they're, they're not allowing the kids, the soccer players, to high-five or to shake hands at the end of games. You can't do it. And so they said, uh, what we recommend is that you do elbow bumps instead. Yeah! So why don't you why don't you elbow bump the person next to you? Little high elbow. Woo! Doesn't quite have the doesn't quite have the punch, do it, does it? So now if you were a parent of one of those kids, this is an actual rule in the New York City soccer club. If you're a parent of one of those kids, how would you respond to that? One parent said, uh, uh, wrote in, the, in response to the article, said, maybe they should just give them trophies for participation and send them home, <laughs> which I find, I find a teeny bit, uh, teeny bit funny. But, I mean, what's your typical response to rules, to the whole idea of rules? Are you a rule follower? It's what it says, so that's what you do. It's written down. That's how you handle it. That's how you treat your coffee maker or whatever. That's the way it says to do it. Or are you a rule resistor, a rule breaker? You get a mattress and you rip those tags off. You're crazy. You are just just breaking down walls. Yeah, we have one over here. Just breaking down walls. What's your typical response to rules? Most of us typically have resistance to rules. If you want to not connect well with kids and you're leading them in a group or a camp counselor or you're teaching them or whatever, then, then what you want to do, if you don't want to connect well with them, is gather them together and say, okay, first thing, we're going to set rules and talk about rules. There's going to be this natural resistance there. You use a different word <laughs> you know, if you want to set some of this stuff up. But there's this resistance for us in terms of rules. And the last thing we want to do is go to church and have the church tell us or remind us or say, here are all the rules. Here's what you can do and can't do. Here's what you must do and what you must not do. So in terms of living life in a healthy way, what's the role of rules? How do we tell the difference between a graceless controlling rule and a rule that offers wise boundaries for us? What's the difference there? Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, I thank you for uh, the opportunity to gather here in this place with one another, to enjoy one another, and to enjoy you. And uh, God, I'm so thankful that you are here. We don't have to to do anything to, to invite you or ask you to be here, that we have gathered in your name, and so you are here present in this place. And so as we talk about your story, as we talk about your role in our lives, I pray that your presence would be, um, uh, would be experienced here in this room. We offer this next few moments to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week I launched into our new series for 2013. 
the whole shebang, part three. If you were not here last week, I highly encourage you and invite you to listen to the message from last week because it kind of sets the tone for what the plan is for this year. You can go to mountainpark.org and and access that, uh, or there are CDs in the lobby if you want to pick that up. If you're new with us, this phrase, whole shebang, is simply referring to God's overall story, the overall story of humanity. And so a, a driving question as we talk about the whole shebang is, what story do you believe is happening around you? What story do you believe you're living in? Because the story we believe we're living in shapes how we live our lives. Do you believe you're part of that story? What story do you believe is happening around us here in this area and around the world? It's a significant question. And so the whole shebang is, is an attempt to talk about the Christian story. What is the story based on an understanding that Jesus is the Messiah? We've gone through this whole shebang journey a couple times, uh, once in 2010 and once in 2011. And this year, the overall theme is the pursuit of holiness that God is inviting and challenging and asking us to be holy, to be set apart, to be noticeably different. Last week I introduced this by looking at, uh, it's kind of a theme verse in 1 Peter chapter 1 in the New Testament. And at the end of that section that we looked at last week, Peter quotes from the Old Testament, quotes God saying, Be holy because I am holy. And so if you brought your Bibles, I want to take a look at the place that Peter quotes from in Leviticus chapter 11. Real real quick, we're going to spend most of our time in Leviticus. It's the third book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And so we're going to spend most of our time there, which uh, my guess is that many of you woke up this morning hoping we would do that. Let's spend more time in Leviticus. So here we are. Prayers answered. Uh, Chapter 11 is where uh, Peter quotes God saying this in verse 40, uh, 45. Leviticus eleven forty five. Moses is uh, writing this, and these are the words of God. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. God says, I am the God who brought you up out of Egypt. This is a central story for the first half of the Old Testament. It is the central story. It's the Exodus story. It's the story that we find early on in the book of Exodus. Many of us are familiar with this story. And and that's why we call the first half of the Old Testament, we refer to it as the Exodus The first tab on your binder. There are seven tabs throughout the year, and we look at these sections throughout the year. We're going to look at the Exodus story for the next few weeks. If you don't have tabs in your binder, uh, you can get one of those on the way out. Uh, As you exit the doors on your right, the the tabs will be available there if you want to put those in your binder. It kind of will help you with uh, this journey this year. But the story of the Exodus is the story of of God using Moses to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And so, and so God, through the, through the ten plagues and finally the, the Passover experience, the Israelites are freed from Egypt and they travel around in the desert for 40 years en route to the promised land. This story of the Israelites being freed from Egypt 
is the central story, and it's referred to many times throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's essential to understand how important this story is in understanding the Old Testament. So again, God says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. Let me remind you of that story. To be your God, therefore, be holy, because I am holy. As I mentioned last week, um, this, there, there's a process that God moves us through to become holy. And it's a process that we actually see reflect, reflected in the story of Scripture. And in this Exodus story, this beginning part of the story, the people of God, the Israelites, are spiritually childlike. That it's, they're starting from the very beginning. They don't know how to do life. They don't know how to interact with one another. They don't know how to interact with their God. And God needs to start somewhere with them. God needs to start somewhere. So he starts with rules and with regulations to give them some boundaries. So this is a rhetorical question, but can you think of the first rule that we find in Scripture? The first rule or guideline. It's actually the first rule that humanity had to deal with. The first rule that humans had to respond to according to the Bible story. It's found in Genesis chapter 2. God says to Adam, you can have all of the stuff that I've given you here in the Garden of Eden, except you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can have access to any of it except this one tree. That's the first rule that God offers in Genesis chapter 2. And that rule is broken in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, so, I mean, there's evidence from the get-go that we are not so good at responding to rules. I mean, that is the story of humanity. I want to take a look at these verses in Genesis chapter 3. So turn with me there, if you will, and then we'll come back into the book of Leviticus. Genesis chapter 3 is is highlighted by the three main characters in the whole shebang story. And we've talked about this uh, for years, but there are three main characters in the overall story. There's God, who is, uh, who is three persons, God and, uh, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. There is God, the Creator. There's humanity, us. And the whole story of the whole shebang is the restoration of, of those two first characters. It is a love story, the restored relationship between God and people. And the third character in that story, just like so many of the stories that we've grown to love, I mean, they they come from this story. There is an adversary. There is a third character in that story, the enemy, whose only task is to sabotage that relationship between the first two characters. That's the job of the enemy. That's all he cares about. Out of his rage and his jealousy, he wants to sabotage that relationship. And so it's those three characters that we see in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Right out of the chute, he's liar. He's a liar. That's not what God said. God said, you can't eat from that one tree. And Satan shows up and said, God says you can't eat from any tree. Twisting it a little bit. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, 
But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Do you notice the twist that's happening here? God didn't say anything about touching it. God said, don't eat from that tree. Uh, The enemy says, oh, you can't uh, uh, eat from any tree. And she kind of twists this around. She is deceived. She's confused. She says, yeah, we're not allowed to touch it either. This is happening so fast in the story of humanity. Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What the serpent is saying here in verses 4 and 5, he's saying, Eve, God is not fair. God is not fair. So he's given you these rules and these boundaries because he wants to withhold from you the very best. He he wants you to think he's good, but he's withholding from you the very best. That's why God gives you these rules and these guidelines and these regulations. So just go ahead and break them. And the enemy, thousands of years later, continues to do the exact same thing with us. And we continue to believe him. We continue to believe the lie that, that God's boundaries or rules are about him withholding the very best from us. That he's controlling us, that he is in some way not loving us through this. It's a lie, and we continue to believe it. And we say that's not fair. Now what section of our world, of our culture, typically says that's not fair? Children. Right? I mean, that's what children say. You can't have dessert. That's not fair. My brother got dessert or whatever. That's what children say. It's not fair. What we find in the Exodus story in the first half of the Old Testament is the people of God are acting like children, saying, it's not fair. God's not fair. We see the people of God acting like children throughout the first part of the Old Testament. In fact, just in the book of Genesis, we see this happening. In the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, is a story of Cain and Abel. And Cain is upset with his brother Abel. So he does what any brother would want out of their natural desire to do to their brother. Takes him out in the field and kills him. Bonk! Yeah! He's a child. And then move later on in the book of Genesis... And there's a key player in the story named Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. And Isaac has two boys, Jacob and Esau. And Esau is the firstborn. He comes out first. They're twins. He comes out first, and he is entitled to the birthright from Isaac, which is a significant chunk. It is a significant part of the Israelite story. And Esau is entitled to that birthright. But Jacob's mom likes Jacob more. So Jacob and his mom conspire together against their dying husband slash father, against Isaac. They conspire to transfer the birthright from Esau to Jacob. And they're successful. It's a great story if you don't know it. And the the birthright gets transferred over by the mom and the son who are conspiring together. Their children, Jacob and his mom, are acting like children. And Jacob does get the birthright. And the story continues to flow through Jacob's line. And he has a bunch of sons. And his second youngest son, 
There's a boy named Joseph. And many of you are likely familiar with that story, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. And it's that boy Joseph who is Jacob's favorite son and all the other brothers are jealous of him. And those brothers again respond the way unruled children will respond to a brother that they're jealous of. They throw him in a cistern. How many of you have done that? How many? They throw him in a cistern. How many of you are wanting to do that? Yeah. They throw him in, yeah, hands go way up. They throw him in a cistern. They say, oh, no, that's not going to work. Let's pull him out. Then they sell him into slavery. Let's at least get some cash out of this guy. They sell him into slavery and tell dad, tell Jacob, he got torn apart by wild animals. They're children. They're children. They're acting like children. This is the repeated story and theme that we see throughout the first part of the Exodus story, of the Old Testament story. And so God has to start somewhere with them. And so what God does is he starts with rules. He starts with some guidelines, with some rules. God multiple times says, I'm holy. Be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. I want to to set you apart. I want to restore you, make you strong, make you better. And it's a process that we talked about last week. It is a process from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity, from selfishness to selflessness. And God wants to guide us through that process, but he's got to start somewhere. So he starts with rules, with guidelines. God says, be holy because I am holy. And so he has this nation that, 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 that of Israel that we've been looking at here in this story. He frees them from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. That's the Exodus story. They're traveling around for 40 years in the desert on the way to the promised land. And in that journey, God gives them a bunch of rules, a bunch of rules and guidelines. And most of them are found in the book of Leviticus. That's kind of the book of rules on how to do life. And there are many rules in the book of Leviticus that are tremendous, that continue to be a part of how we do life. They continue to be a part of how the United States has shaped uh, its laws based on these rules that were given thousands of years ago. But there are a number of rules in Leviticus that sound very odd. And if you've read through the, the book of Leviticus, you may have kind of tilted your head a few times as you were reading through this book. Let me give you a few examples. In Leviticus chapter 11, so I'm going back to chapter 11, beginning in verse 6. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 6 reads, The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a split hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a split hoof completely divided, does not chew the cud. A little confusing. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. That's why Jewish people are never quarterbacks or receivers in football. They can be linemen, but they can't touch the football. I mean, it's, it's kind of an odd rule. Let me look at some more. That's, that's, Steve Martin refers to that as, as, a, as a refrigerator joke. You get that later when you're opening the refrigerator. Oh, oh okay. Jump to chapter 15. 
verse 19. See, Leviticus is a very enjoyable book. Leviticus 15, verse 19. When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. That's an example of one of the verses in seminary we're taught, never read that in church. That's one of, that's, that's one of the verses. There's about eight of them, and that's one of them. You're not supposed to read that. And, but just think about the experience for these men in this situation. How are they supposed to handle that rule? How are they supposed to manage through that? How are they supposed to know? Because every man in the history of humanity understands you're not supposed to ask. You're not supposed to assume, and you're not supposed to ask. So how are they going to work this one out? It's, a, it's, a, it's an odd rule. Let me move on before people start leaving. Uh, Chapter 19. Move to Leviticus chapter 19. And that chapter begins, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Again, there's this repeated deal. And in chapter 19, God gives a number of various laws. Good stuff. And in verse 27, he says, Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Most of you men here in this room have been, have been disobeying this law for most of your life. Well, how does that work? Where does that fit? One more, chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 44, reads, Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them you may buy slaves, which means... You are not allowed to have slaves from one another, but because I am Canadian, most of you can have me as a slave. It's right there. I'm from a neighboring nation. And so some of these rules are odd, and some people are going to view these rules as gems to denounce the authority of Scripture. Maybe there have been people in your life, a professor of English when you were in college, who would pull out stuff like this and say, see, it's ridiculous. Why would you want to have this be the foundation for how you do life? It's ridiculous. Some people are going to use these against the authority of Scripture. But we we have to, first of all, remember that rules sometimes sound ridiculous when they're out out of context. I mean, these were the rules that God gave the, the children of Israel in terms of how to do life. And it had to do with their situation and what they needed at that time. Some of the things carry over. Some are circumstantial and don't need to carry over. But, but it's okay for us to understand. Sometimes rules are circumstantial. Did you know that in Arizona there was a rule that you, it was prohibited to shoot camels? Did you know that that was a rule in Arizona? And I'm not talking about circus camels or zoo camels. Those are protected in every state because of of property uh, laws. I'm talking about wild camels in Arizona. How many of you have seen a wild camel recently? Hands up, hands up. Apparently in the uh, mid-1800s, the United States Army was experimenting with camels as a part of of their process, as a part of their army, as traveling, etc., And so they were doing that in Arizona, but that whole plan was interrupted by the Civil War, and so they had to abandon that whole journey, and so they released some of these camels into the wild in Arizona. And they set up a law, an actual law in the books, protecting these wild camels in Arizona in the mid-1800s. 
Well, it was relevant for the time. It's a little bit silly for us now. What if, what if we bring this closer to home? Sometimes rules that we have to engage with are written and official. Sometimes they're not. They're kind of these unwritten, unofficial rules. One unofficial yet, I think, consistent rule in our culture is that if somebody sleeps in a bed one night, you have to completely change the sheets one night. That's an unofficial, that's an absolute rule in our culture. But it's kind of odd rule. I mean, think about it. If somebody comes over to your house this afternoon and watches a football game, and they come over and they're all sweaty, and they're excited and they're sweating on your couch, and they sweat for hours on your couch, and they're eating Doritos, and they're wiping Dorito oil and cheese all over your couch, but they're doing it secretly, and they're doing one of these for hours, and then the game is over, and then they get up and they, and you, and they leave. You don't think twice about plopping down on the couch right where they were sitting. And, or even that night getting tired and laying down and sleeping in the Dorito oil. You, you don't even think about it. You, you don't get disgusted about it. But if somebody sleeps in a bed in your house, then when they get out the next day, you wipe the thing. I mean, you take everything off and everything needs to go to the decontamination chamber and the whole thing because they slept. Now, I understand pillows. I understand pillows and all the drool that happens with that. that. That's totally acceptable. I'm totally game for that. But what's our deal with the few thousand uh, skin cells that are in the bed as a result of that? Okay, I mean, there's some rules that are, a little, that are a little odd, but we have to kind of think about the context. There are some other cultures who would think it would be ridiculous that we have to wash a bed sheet because somebody slept in there one night. Some of the rules we have to look in terms of the context of it. And then secondly, we need to be reminded that God was dealing with a group of people who were spiritually and relationally children. And so he chose to start somewhere. That's what he chose to do. And he chose to start with rules and guidelines. And as, as we'll see in the biblical story, God begins to respond differently to the people of God as they mature throughout the story. But this is how God chose to get the thing started. So let me ask you again, how do you respond to rules? Maybe so far in our journey today, there's some history that has been stirred up for you in terms of the church and the rules in the church. And there's been some parts of your journey where the church has told you you can do this and you can't do this. And it's been uh, very much a, a reason for your resistance to God because of the church bringing down these rules. Now let me just tell you, the purpose of this series is not to unveil a bunch of mountain park rules about what to do and what not to. Rest assured, that is absolutely not what is going to happen here. But I do believe there are times in our journeys where we need to acknowledge rules and guidelines and ways that God wants to challenge us in the way we do, we're doing life. Sometimes they're universal concepts, universal, absolute concepts and rules that we find in Scripture that we learn as we do life together. And we say, yeah, I've got to relook at that area of my life. Other times, they're individual, and the Holy Spirit will speak to you about something in particular in your journey that may not be something somebody else needs to do. But it's a guideline or a parameter or a boundary that is significant for your journey. Again, how do you respond to rules? How will you respond 
if the Holy Spirit plants something like that on you this year. I want to look at one more verse in Leviticus. Uh, just If you were in chapter 25, back up to chapter 20. One more verse. Chapter 20, verse 26. God says, You are to be holy to me, because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. I have set you apart. We've talked about this before. Holiness means to be set apart. Why does God give these rules and these guidelines, and why is he walking through all that he walks through in Leviticus? is so that the nation of Israel, in a world that was very childlike, the nation of Israel would be different. They would be set apart. They would be noticeably different. And that the nations around them would say, okay, wait a minute, I'm noticing something different about the nation of Israel. What's going on there? And to God's glory and for God's attention, the world around would start to Take notice of Israel's God. That's why God says, I want you to act differently. I want you to be different. Most of us have a desire to stand out, to be noticeably different. At your place of work, many of you want to stand out. You want to show that you are exemplary at what you do. You want to stand out in terms of of, of excellence in your job. Some of you, perhaps you're in high school or you're in college or you remember being in high school and college and there's this desire as a part of that journey to stand out. You don't want to be like everybody else. You want to stand out in terms of how you dress or how you do certain things. You want to kind of, I want to be noticeably different. And we can desire to be noticeably different for morally neutral reasons, reasons that are, that are, that are not moral, morally right or wrong. You just want to wear different clothes or have different pants or have your pants shorter or longer or whatever. We can stand out in some morally neutral ways or we can stand out, be noticeably different in ways that dishonor God. We've seen that in our country many times that people can get a whole lot of attention by doing things that incredibly dishonor people and incredibly dishonor God. We can stand out in that way. The pursuit of holiness is about standing out, is about being set apart, being noticeably different in ways that are honoring to God. It's about being noticeably different in areas like forgiveness, where the world says, this is what would be expected, this is what most people would do in that situation. But God says, I want you to be set apart in terms of how you're handling forgiveness. I want you to be noticeably different in terms of entitlement. That you feel like you've done this and you've worked this and so you deserve to have this. Entitlement is an issue that we struggle with as seven-year-olds. We also struggle with as 70-year-olds. God says, I want you to be noticeably different in terms of your sexuality. Noticeably different in terms of your marriage. That in a world that would typically want to uh, just dissolve the marriage... I want you to be noticeably different in your pursuit of holiness in that area of your life. I want you to be noticeably different in terms of your parenting. 
I want you to be noticeably different in a world, in a culture that seems to be drifting further and further away from God's design. I want you to stand out in a way that honors God. So the Exodus story, the first half of the Old Testament, is a story of God establishing a nation through whom he wants to bless the whole world, the nation of Israel. And he's dealing with children in the first part of the Old Testament. And they're a mess. And he has to give them rules and guidelines. He has to start somewhere with them. So he chooses to start with rules. If there is an area of your life that you feel you do not have a handle on, Maybe there's an area of your life where you have desired change, you've desired to pull out of a rut, you've desired to stop spinning in the ways that you have been spinning, but your journey has proven that you can't do it on your own. There's some area like that. You have to start somewhere in that part of your life. Why not establish a rule for yourself? Why not start with a rule? with a guideline, with a very clear parameter. If you want to drink less soda, then have a rule for yourself to say one pop a week. That's my wife. My wife has a rule, one pop a week. It's part of her journey. An alcoholic doesn't get a one-month chip or a two-month chip or a one-year chip because they did pretty well for that period of time. They have made a rule for themselves and have embraced seriously the rule to say no alcohol. None. Maybe you're not an alcoholic, but you're finding that in your journey of doing life that you're driving periodically with a buzz after an experience. Maybe you need to have a rule or a guideline in your life that says when I'm the driver, when I'm driving, I don't have one glass that's not legalism. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just inviting wisdom into those journeys. When adultery becomes a part of a marriage relationship, the rules need to change. You need to revisit the rules. And for the mo for in most situations, that means there can't be an area of secrecy in your life. There can't be an area where this email and the communications I have with this email is, is just for me. It's just a private situation or this bank account is private for me or th these voicemails, you're not allowed to have access to that. The rules need to change in the pursuit of holiness. Or if pornography is, is something that you struggle with, something that either you uh, continue to participate in or something that just continues to scratch at you and nag at you and whatever your journey is, what rules are you establishing in order to pursue holiness in that area? Rules of, of um, filters and accountability and ways to do well in that area. It's not legalism. It's an invitation towards holiness. And that's between you and God. And maybe it's other areas of life. It's other eating issues. Or maybe it's other health-related issues. Or maybe it's recurring anger in your journey. What rules are you open to in those parts of your life? Rules don't make you weak. A rule does not make you weak. Sometimes we think that, well, rules, they're for children. So we give rules to children. 
but, but I'm, an, I'm an adult. And so we're too prideful to embrace, go down to the basics of rules because I'm an adult. Let's not let our pride have us stay in this place of being a mature adult who continues to be caught in bondage. Simply set a rule for yourself. You've got to start somewhere. Set a rule for yourself. Write it down. Put it on a post-it note. Put it on your mirror in your bathroom so you see it every day. Put it on your visor in your car so you see it as you're driving to work. But be careful so that you also watch the road. Put it on your computer at work so it's a constant part of your journey and say, this is a guideline for me in light of my pursuit of holiness. Write it down and get after it. It's not legalism. And, and I and the church is not telling you what to do. We're inviting you to pay attention to what wise boundary the Holy Spirit wants to bring into your life. You've got to start somewhere. I want to give you an opportunity here as we close to reflect on that, to respond to God in terms of your pursuit of holiness. The band is going to come up, lead us in a couple songs. And if you're new with us, there are a number of different ways here in the room that persons will respond to God over the next few moments. They're listed in your program if you'd like more information on that. Folks will come to the cross and nail something there. You can come to the front for prayer, light a candle. There'll be anointing over here to the right. Anointing is the... Uh, is oil that represents the healing power of God. There's prayer at either the exits on the side, communion's available in the center. Or, of course, you could just stay where you are. Just journal, think, sing, pray. Throw your guitar around. (laughs) And so what I invite you to do in these next few moments, I invite you to, to... to go through areas of your life where perhaps there's something that that you don't feel like you have a handle on. And instead of being the mature adult who doesn't have to, to stoop down to rules and guidelines, maybe there is a rule that the Holy Spirit wants to start you with to say, I want to get after this area. you got to start somewhere. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, I pray for um, clarity for those uh, in this room who want to hear from the Holy Spirit in terms of an area of their lives and a rule that perhaps you want to pour into that area. God, may we be like children coming before you here today and as we begin this journey. I know, God, there are areas of my life where I sometimes feel like a child and I, I so want to be an adult, and I am an adult. But then there's this area here where I just, I just continue to say, it's not fair, and I act like a child. And so, God, I pray for boldness here in this room, for folks to be able to, to open up to the reality of areas in our lives where we act like children. May we start somewhere. Would you come, lead us and guide us in these next few moments, we pray. In Jesus' name.